Rage is all the rage. Weaponizing words and the weaknesses of others is where many politicians spend their days. Social media has created an America that is no longer a melting pot, but a place where you can deploy divisive rhetoric to melt down those who disagree with you. Leaders aren't leading and are actually avoiding crucial conversations. Contempt towards others is a cancer in our communities. How do we cure the nation's contempt, unite around principles and values, and at minimum, put civil back in civil dialogue and debate? Utah's Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox weighs in on this week's edition of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? Very pleased today to be joined by Spencer Cox, Lieutenant Governor of the great state of Utah. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be with you, Boyd. Thanks for having me. Well, man, we, we've got so many things going on in the country. It doesn't seem like you can turn a radio, TV, or a internet connection on without somebody yelling and screaming about something. Uh, you've been around the, the political block a few times and seen it. What's your assessment of where we are as a country today? <laughs> well, I wish I could be a little more optimistic, but uh, every time I think we've hit the bottom, we find a new bottom. And maybe <laughs> I started to realize maybe there isn't a bottom. Certainly, it's, it's discouraging. What we're seeing at the national level with the divisiveness, uh, the the type of rhetoric that we're seeing, and uh, the 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 debasing of institutions, I think it's something uh, you and I have had these conversations yeah. now for for years. But it's certainly gotten worse over the last couple of years, and and the last few months feel like like hopefully hopefully a bottom of some sort, a tipping point maybe. Yeah, we we can we can only hope that. And it seems like at the at the national level, it is just so. So heated, so over the top, uh, and both sides of the aisle are, are equal to blame. Uh, but as you travel around the state, how do you see it playing out here locally as well? You know, not not nearly like my colleagues when I talk to them and what mm -hmm. they're seeing uh, across the country. Utah seems to be an outlier in a positive way. Uh, there's, you know, re regardless of what side you're on, there seems to be a rejection mostly of that type of, of rhetoric. We certainly don't see it at the at the uh, at the legislative le level here, but but even even down in the trenches, and and some of the polling we've done has shown that as well that where People, uh, people do disagree and they feel strongly about things, but they don't hate the way that we're seeing at, uh, at the, at the national, national level. level. Yeah. And, and so it's, it, it, that part does give me hope. I mean, I, I think that Utah has an opportunity here to really be, uh, an example to the nation about how we can collaborate, work on things together, uh, find some common ground with people that we disagree with. We, we've certainly, we certainly have examples of that. And I know we're going to talk about a few of them throughout the, uh, the, the podcast. But, uh, if, if there are good things happening and there seems to be at least at some level a rejection of, of what we're seeing in Washington, D.C. Yeah. I found it so interesting uh, this week, obviously, as, as the hearings continue to, to go on in terms of Judge Kavanaugh and the, and the Supreme Court, uh, there, there's almost a, uh, a confirmation bias, <laughs> literally confirmation. And it seems yes. like nobody's moved on, on either side, that people have kind of made up their minds. And so we're, we're back to this talking past each other again. 
uh, as opposed to having real conversations about real issues. You know, my staff and I had this conversation today. This The, the Kavanaugh issue feels like one of those exam questions that one of my law professors would have made up for an exam. You know, these impossible fact yeah. patterns where they're, you know, on this hand, but but on the other hand, but but on the other hand, right. there, there's no... There's no there's no resolution. There's no end to to that discussion. And and I had one of my staff members today who said to me, you know, he said, I I, I can't believe how each side can't see the other side's point of view on on this one. Yeah. Uh, and and certainly as I travel around, you mentioned the confirmation bias. And if you if you are unwilling to to look outside of yourself and try to see the other side. Boy, there, there's so much to confirm your own biases in, in this one, which, whichever side of this you're on. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I, I had this interesting experience one time where uh, we were getting ready to uh, to film uh, a uh, back and forth, a little political discussion. And the, the person who was supposed to be arguing against what I was supposed to be <laughs> arguing for uh, didn't show. And there were three people on the panel. And so they asked me, hey, could you just represent the other side? Wow. And at first I thought, yeah, that'll, that'll be easy. I know what they're about. And But then I had to sit there for about 10 minutes and, and actually prepare. Kind of recalibrate. Yeah, yeah. And so I started to think through it. And I think there's great merit to arguing for the other side to at least, as, as you said, uh, you know, being able to at least take into consideration where the other side is coming. It was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it caused me to think, I still disagree with them. But I totally get why they're upset with this or they're frustrated with that. Uh, how do we how do we get to that point? Well, I, I, man, I, that is a great lesson. I wish everybody had the opportunity to do that. It happened to me actually in high school. I had a I had a teacher in high school in uh, in one of our classes who would ask us beforehand, what is your opinion on this? And we kind of raise our hands. And then he would assign us the opposite. The opposite. Yeah, the opposite <laughs> topic. And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because, f- first of all, it makes it makes your argument stronger. If you can see the other side, then you're you're better able to at least maybe convince the other side of what, what your position is. But more importantly, I, I often found that there was truth sometimes on the other side. And, yeah. and maybe not the whole truth, maybe not everything I believed in, but I could see parts of it that made me much more compassionate and empathetic and understanding for what they're going through. And uh, and this is one of those where I, I really wish people would do that. I, I wish the Kavanaugh defenders would step out and say, look, we do have a problem in this country, and, and we especially had a problem 30 years ago yeah. when, when it comes to the, the treatment of women and, uh, and and the behavior of men and, and their actions around women. Um, at the same time, trying to understand how someone who who believes and and maybe is completely innocent through all of this uh, that that they they can see their life being destroyed by an allegation that they they, they believe yeah. is completely false and and how that can be misconstrued and and dangerous in a society where we we absolutely believe in in uh, innocent until proven guilty and all of those competing interests that go that yeah. go into it. Yeah, and to me, one of the real precarious things I think we're looking at is we've continued to have this undermining of trust in institutions and in government in general. Now we're looking at the Supreme Court. Uh, and and uh, there's some Pew research out there that's that's also interesting that is showing for the first time in our history, our trust in each other as individuals is starting to decline. Uh, it used to be if you asked someone a question, uh, is your neighbor trustworthy? 
That was a 70 plus percent answer for the entire country. Of course, I trust my neighbors. I know my neighbors. I trust them. Uh, but now that number's down into the low 20s. And among millennials, it's down into the teens. Wow. That now we're really starting to tug at that fabric of society. If we stop trusting each other altogether, we have a whole different set of problems. So I hadn't heard those numbers yet, but very sobering and uh, and problematic for for sure. It, you know those 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 institutions that you mentioned, the Supreme Court, our government institutions, again foundational to to who we are. But but the foundation of those institutions is this this idea of trust and being able to trust one another even when we disagree. And if you look back through history at the times where that trust has been frayed, the consequences are are pretty severe. And, uh, and, and that's definitely troubling. I, I would, I, I would posit without seeing the numbers that those numbers are much higher in Utah. Yeah. Which, I which I, I, I feel confident in. Uh, certainly the right track, wrong track numbers we often see where Washington, D.C., Utahns usually think is on the wrong track, but in Utah we feel like we're mostly on yeah. the right track. And, uh, and we tend to believe in each other and, and support our, our fellow Utahns. But, but uh, that's, that's rough. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost speechless. <laughs> uh, well, one last thing, just as it relates to the Kavanaugh hearings, because so often the, the, the rhetoric, the anger, the angst, the frustration, the fundraising that goes on from both sides is so exhausting. Uh, but it often keeps us from really important conversations. And I think, I think a couple of things that have been completely lost in the Kavanaugh hearings is – should we not be having a conversation about underage drinking? Yeah. Should we not be having a conversation about, well, maybe maybe morals do matter. Maybe the way we view each other, not as uh, objects for sexual pleasure, but as human beings and people, um, I think there's a couple of conversations to be had there. Well, I— I'm troubled that it has been lost in all of this. I, I, I mentioned this to a couple people just just today, actually, that that hopefully this is a cautionary tale to young people. Um, it certainly, you know, I have I have young kids. I, I have uh, I have four kids under the age of of twenty now. Uh, mm-hmm. My oldest is nineteen. My youngest is eleven, almost twelve. And and we have these conversations with them. You kind of think that you know the stuff we do now doesn't matter, but it does have lifelong consequences. And uh, and certainly underage drinking and drug use uh, that's that's not that's not something that happened just thirty years ago. The stuff that's yeah. that's happening today. Uh, fascinating. I was listening to a, a podcast uh, on the the uh, the Clinton era scandals called yeah. Slow Burn from from Slate. And fascinating podcast. I, I highly recommend it. But one of the latest episodes was talking about the divide in the feminist movement at the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't aware that this divide existed, but it's a divide between they, what they kind of refer to as the libertines and the prudes. Um, now, I'm obviously not the person to be speaking on behalf of the feminist movement, but the, uh, it, it was fascinating to see some of those arguments from, from feminists at the time that, that, you know, affectionately referred to as the prudes that, uh, you know, there w- what could be no consent between a president and an intern, a, a mm-hmm. young intern, because of the disparity there. And others saying, look, no, you know, use your body however you want in any way possible. And and certainly there are arguments to be made about the the oppression of women by men. Uh, but but what they're talking about here is uh, the happiness and, and joy, right? And, and mm-hmm. where those foundations of happiness and joy come from. And if you want to avoid trouble, man, you know, uh, underage or, or, or uh, sex outside of, of marriage is, is known to lead to lots of, lots of issues, right? right? Lots right. of very pro- pro- 
problematic societal issues and and the underage drinking or over drinking uh, or drinking in general regardless of of your your age or, or status um, if you're not if it's if you're not in control and uh, it, it can lead to heartbreak and and uh, and problems throughout life so so yeah I think these are important discussions to be having and we're yeah. certainly having them with our kids yeah good well let's let's shift into that leadership space because I, I do think it's going to require a, a next generation of, of leadership to to move beyond this rhetoric and and all of the things we're seeing in Washington and, and less so locally here in Utah um, I know you've done a lot of study around leadership and and one of my favorite pieces of, of leadership is the leaders who are willing to go to tough places to go where they're not necessarily wanted or needed or where they might even be despised or <laughs> or ridiculed but willing to go into those spaces so that it's you know we have so much preaching to the choir or people in their own you know confirmation bias bubbles um I know you have a, a connection uh an emotional connection in terms of what Bobby Kennedy did uh on the night that uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated yeah, so this is something that that I've talked about before and shared, and and again, I, I know Republicans aren't supposed to talk about Democrats in such a way, but I think that's, maybe one of the best speeches dumb. ever given. It, it really is, and I, and I would encourage people to go and and search it out because here he is on, again. Martin Luther King has just been assassinated. You know, he's scheduled to deliver a campaign speech. He's out. Uh, speaking of a troubling period in in history, yeah. right? The assassination of his brother, then Martin Luther King, and then his own, you know, his own assassination. But he he goes into the inner city, into a you know into this this black neighborhood, and he they didn't have the internet then, right? No, right. they didn't know this had happened, and he's the one that delivers to them this news, the news yeah, that this has happened, and then. Off the cuff, you know, kind of back of the napkin. In fact, his literally, literally, yeah. He just he just jotted this down on his way there, and and his staffers told him not to do it, like yeah. not to go cancel it. You know, you have yeah. every the reason in the world. The police even said they police, couldn't protect yep, him. They said we're we're out of here. And he gets up and and just gives one for the ages, right? Yeah. And, and he talks about that that concept of look, you have every right to be mad, you have every right to be angry, and I wouldn't blame you, but um, but. We can we can be better and and we can do better and man it just every time I read it 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 yeah. just it just gets me and I, I know you're a fan too yeah well and and his uh, his line as he gets to uh, really the compassion component that I think uh, we so often are are losing that in our leaders they're becoming more and more transactional and political uh, than having that compassion and relationship uh, but he you know when Bobby Kennedy said I I know what it's like to have a, a brother yeah. senselessly killed by another person. Uh, but we're better than this. Yeah. And, and we can use this data to be angry or we can use it to, to move forward. Well, and, and from a leadership perspective, and, and this is what you're referring to, I, about politicians today being transactional and, uh, and talking point politicians, you know, it's, it's all so fake and, and mm-hmm. so phony. And I think people are tired of it. I, I do think it's one of the reasons that, that Donald Trump resonated and was elected was because at least he wasn't like all the other buffoons right. out there. Whole tested, yeah. consultant certified. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, but at the same time, one of the things that I struggle with with President Trump is – 
the divisiveness yeah. that that he uses for for gain. I there was a cartoon that I saw actually just just earlier today where there, there's kind of a king and his servant, and there's an angry mob out in front of him, and they all have pitchforks. And his servant says, uh, he says, oh, you don't need to fight them. You just need to convince the pitchfork people that the torch people want to take away their pitchforks. <laughs> and that's, that's leadership by division. Yeah. And, and what, what, what Bobby Kennedy did there was, uh, was to be very vulnerable, to put himself in a vulnerable situation, to admit that he, you know, on, on one hand, didn't know what they were going through, that, you know, as, as a white, privileged person, yeah. you know, he couldn't, couldn't really understand what you're going through, but he did have this life experience and, and he drew on that life experience to express yeah. empathy and love and compassion for them. And then, and then to call them to something better, to, to a higher purpose. Let's, yeah. you know, let's, let's be better than this. We're, we're a better country than this. And, and, and that's to me is what the best leaders have done throughout history. They've, uh, they've, They've not run away from the problems. They've recognized the problems. In fact, they've immersed themselves in the problems. But they, they've, also, they've also shown a better way. They, they try to lift people up and bring people mm-hmm. together. And that's what's desperately lacking yeah. in our country today. You mentioned this idea of vulnerability uh, in leaders. And I, and I call it that courageous vulnerability uh, that, that we have to, to really get to. Uh, here at the Deseret News, we've been focused so much on teens and anxiety, teens and, and stress and, and depression. And by the way, just great stuff. I mean, we, we read it with our kids. Uh, it, they, you know, they're in that stage where they're, there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of pressure on them. And yeah. of course, we're seeing suicide rates in the state. I, I just really, I, I have to say that I appreciate what you've been doing here at the Deseret News. It's, it's, it hasn't gone unnoticed. No, it, it's been great. And our in-depth team have just really knocked it out of the park in terms of great resources, great opportunities there. And, and it's led to a lot of those courageously vulnerable kinds of conversations. Uh, and it's a, it's an aspect of your leadership that you've been willing uh, to show some of your vulnerability around some of those issues around anxiety and depression and, and so on. Uh, share just a little bit in terms of your engagement on what I think is one of the critical issues, not just for the state of Utah, but really across the country. Yeah, so I was at a uh, – I'd been asked to go and speak with a, a group in northern Utah up in Box Elder County, and they had a community event surrounding suicide and suicide prevention and awareness and bringing people together. And, you know, I had kind of my talking points that my staff had helped me prepare to speak on, you know, here's the the statistics in Utah. Here's what we need to do to overcome it. And I'm sitting there listening to, uh, to, to, to parents who had lost children, to children who had lost parents, Mm -hmm. and they're, they're telling their stories. And I'm like, man, this is powerful. And, and there is, uh, there, there is a power in, Truth and storytelling, and and that courageous mm-hmm. vulnerability that you talked about, and, and, and compared to what they were doing, this was not courageous at all. But I just realized that at that time, I'd really never shared my story. I'd never really vocalized it outside of maybe a couple people that uh, that I had struggled as a teenager. My parents got divorced uh, when I was when I was ten years old from a small Mormon town in mm-hmm. uh, you know in central Utah, where that didn't happen very much back in the mm-hmm. back in the uh, the early eighties. And, and then going to middle school and, and being bullied. I, I got, I got shoved in a garbage can the first week of school in, in middle school as kids were walking down the hall and, uh, just a really dark period in my life and, and, uh, wondering if, if the, the world would be a better place without me. I had those mm-hmm. thoughts often and I thought I was the only one having those thoughts and, uh, was embarrassed at having those thoughts, which in turn just made it spiral downward. Now, 
very fortunate to be surrounded by incredible people. Uh, and even though I didn't talk to them about it, I, I think they sensed it and they, they worked hard to, to help me get in a better place. And eventually yeah. I came through that. I had a, I had a stepmom that was just incredible who really helped me and, and, uh, a leader at my church who, who took a, took notice of me and took an interest in me when, mm-hmm. when he didn't have to. And, uh, and, and those things literally saved my life. I, I believe yeah. that. And, and so, so I shared that for the first time and, and not realizing again, the impact that it would have on me, the impact that it, it would have on others by sharing that. And so it's something I've, I've tried to do more broadly, especially talking to our youth and giving them space to understand that one, it's lots of people have those thoughts. You're not alone. You're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. You're not alone. There's not something wrong with you because you had those thoughts. There's, there's, there is something wrong with following through on those thoughts. And that's where we need to, we need to talk and really trying to change the environment, making an environment where those, those subjects aren't taboo. Yeah. Where we can open up where uh, I, I like to use the example of a, a broken arm. You know, I broke my hand, my thumb uh, during baseball tryouts when I was in high school. And I, I asked kids, you know, if you broke your arm, would you would you hide it from people? No. What do we do? We show up with our cast on and everybody, right, everybody signs, signs, it. signs <laughs> it. Right. That's what we do. We're excited. That's hey, look, great. I broke my arm. I'm cool now. I broke my arm. <laughs> and yet when something's broken inside of us, uh, we don't share it. We're mm-hmm. embarrassed to share it. And uh, and we shouldn't because it's it's much more common than we think. And, uh, and, and so, it, you know, it, those things that feel vulnerable, when we do them, uh, there's, it, it ends up being the exact opposite. There's a yeah. real power in it, and, and it allows us to help other people. That's great. We appreciate your leadership in, in that space and your, your ability to create space for people to share their stories and uh, get the help that, that they need really critical uh, across the country. Uh, I want to shift to another area where you've you've been a great leader in our community, and that's uh, dealing with the the homelessness, the drug epidemic, uh, those things that are happening, particularly downtown and inner city uh, components to this. Uh, it, it's so interesting, uh, and I, I love your approach to to all of this. Uh, from the time we're we're in kindergarten, we're taught that if we want to understand something, we have to label it, we have to group it. We have to compare it. We have to define it. Uh, and, and while that may be fine for the, the sciences and math, uh, those very things prevent us from having compassion. If I see a homeless person and I immediately start to, to classify them and group them as, you know, a druggie or a partier or what's, you know, loser uh, and start to go through all of that, I have no chance to compassionately help them. Uh, in any way. So as you looked at the the project here in Utah, uh, Operation Rio Grande, what are some of the lessons that you've learned uh, as you've tried to lead in that space? Well, I I love that question. I love that lead in. You know, I I don't know that I'd ever really looked at it that way, but everything you just said is so true about compartmentalizing the the way we describe people, even the way we talk Mm -hmm. about them, the othering of of the the human race, which is so dangerous. And look, it's it's like everything else. Every time in your life when you've gone out of your way to get to know someone who was different than you, it it's always ended up better than, than expected. It's hard at first, and then you're, you're grateful you've done it. And so taking those opportunities, and I, I was very fortunate to have people, you know, in Sanpete County, where I'm from, we don't really have homeless people. Right. We have poverty, and we have a tremendous amount of it. And, sure. and intergenerational poverty is, is another big issue. But, uh, you know, this, this was a new experience. And, and as a lieutenant governor, one of my assignments is, is homelessness. 
like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. So great people like Pamela Atkinson and, and other uh, communities, uh, stalwarts who, who are engaged in this space gave me an opportunity. Representative Steve Ellison mm-hmm. one day said to me, Hey, um, you know, why this was, uh, four years ago. He said, why, why don't we go spend some time down at the, the shelter. I'm like, sure, I'd love to go visit the shelter. He's like, nah. He said, what if we really went to the shelter? <laughs> like, what, what are you talking about? And uh, uh, just an incredible experience. No one knew we were coming. Um, we, I put my farm clothes on, and uh, we just showed up one night. We checked ourselves in, spent the night, talked to as many people as we could talk to. Mm. And I learned more in that, uh, you know, that 18 hours than, than, the years before the years since yeah. about about a very vulnerable population and so when it came time to to really focusing on what we could do to fix things there um you know i fell back on on the the principles that i i believe are are truth and and they're they're principles that that uh, you and i have talked about that, mm-hmm. that i believe in politics in religion in life in work things i i learned on the farm and they're very simple and the first one is we have to be responsible for our actions um no no matter what you know we have laws in place. And my, my wife talks about this back on the Kavanaugh thing with our kids. You know, we, we teach them, we certainly hope that nothing would happen, but we also can't shield them from the consequences of right. those, those actions as teenagers. And so, so when we have these laws, they haven't been enforced here. We have to start enforcing those laws as a baseline. Um, but at the same time, I also believe that we should expect more of each other. I believe that people rise to their expectations, our children too. Sometimes we set the expectations way too low. Yeah. And and for our, our friends experiencing homelessness, I mean, these are real people who, who are just like us. Some of them were in the same position we were, and maybe they had a knee surgery, they got some opioids, they got hooked on it, couldn't get off, and before you know it, they're, they're, they're on right. the street. Other of them have just been dealt terrible hands. Many of them have mel- mental illness, um, you know, addiction, all of these thing. But, uh, but we should raise the expectations for them. And so that's what we did. The second thing is that we should help people. That's what we do best here in Utah, yeah. right? We lead the nation in volunteerism and charitable giving every year. So how can we help people that, that have addiction, people that are suffering? Well, let's, let's get them treatment. Uh, you know, we're going to hold them accountable, but when they're ready, when they want treatment, we're going to give we're it there. to them. So yeah. we double the number of treatment beds in, in, in the Valley, which, is, which was huge. Um, and then the third one is, I, I believe, you know, my dad taught me from an early age on the farm that you always feel better about yourself. I know you don't want to go out and move those sprinkler pipe. I know you don't want to haul hay. I, don't, I know you don't want to milk that cow. But I promise you, you'll feel better about yourself afterwards. Yeah. And, and every time he's right. I mean, I can lay on the couch and watch football, and I love it. But I always feel better when I've done something and worked for something. So we, the dignity of work, once you've gotten treatment, mm-hmm. once you're ready, we're going to find a job for you, and we're going to help you stay in that job. And we're going to give you every opportunity possible. And we're going to expect you to, to take advantage of that. And many of them have, and, uh, and it's changing their lives, and it's, it's amazing to see. Yeah. Again, very simple, very simple things that, that make a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. Great. As, as we come down the, the home stretch, I, I want to kind of come full circle now. Uh, as we've talked about some leadership issues around some, some really important uh, topics, uh, to get back to this idea of, of elevating the conversation uh, and moving that forward. I know you've got a, you've got a great podcast that I love to listen to because – it's actually fun. <laughs> it's actually a, a a real conversation. So share share just a little bit in terms of what you're doing with the, with Cox and Friends uh, as a podcast because I think it's a it, it's a very inviting and very safe space I think for people to go into, but actually to come away 
uh, with some really great insight. Well, we, we hope so. And I have no idea what the podcast is. It's just something that we wanted to do. It's, it's me and some of my great friends coming together to talk about, uh, talk about all things Utah, really. Uh, we always start out with what we call nausea-free politics. So we'll, we'll touch on some of the issues of the day, especially Utah-related, but some mm-hmm. nationally as well. And, uh, and then we, uh, we move on to, to things we love, uh, technology here in the state of Utah, food here in the state of Utah, sports here in the state of Utah. It's a, it's, it's a, it's kind of a rollicking podcast. We do have some some great guests that come on once in a while. We recently had McKay Coppins yeah. with The Atlantic, McKay's who great. I know you know you yeah. know well, and uh, he's a, he's a friend of the state of Utah, great writer, and uh, it, that that was a lot of fun. We've had Gail yeah. Miller on a, as well, and uh, and we we will do book reviews. We'll do a little bit of everything. So it's kind of a potpourri of all things Utah. The, my my favorite parts are obscure Utah history. We get into some really fun things that most people have no idea have happened uh, in the in the recent past right here in our great state. Oh, that's so great. Thank our, you. Our our, uh, our our most recent, if we go all the way full circle here with uh, Judge Kavanaugh, uh, a very interesting bit of of history, obscure Utah history. Uh, some people realize that uh, George Sutherland is the only Utahn to ever serve on the United States Supreme That's Court. That's correct, yes. Uh, but what most people don't realize is that when he was nominated September 5th, 1922, uh, by President Harding, uh, uh, Justice uh, Sutherland was out of the country. He was in England on a speaking tour. He was nominated at 9 a.m. in the morning, and before the sun set on September 5th, he was confirmed. Wow. That <laughs> by, I did not know. By unanimous voice vote. <laughs> I don't know if we can ever have that again. <laughs> yeah, yes. Things we will never see happen again. That's, that's a perfect example. <laughs> I love All it. All right. Last, last thing is, as you've served as uh, the state's lieutenant governor, uh, again, you, the people you've met, the places you've exerted leadership, give us one lesson to, to think about going away. What's something that you've learned that maybe you didn't expect to learn? Uh, as lieutenant governor, wow, that's a, that's a tough one because <laughs> there were so I didn't expect to be lieutenant governor, and <laughs> and uh, the things I I expected to learn were were uh, I, I think very few. It, it'll be five years next week. Wow, um, th- that I was uh, that I was appointed to this kind of out of nowhere when lieutenant governor Greg Bell resigned, and I I think what I have learned the most, and it's really the the overriding theme to what you're talking about right now, um, it's the power of. Of collaboration, it's the power of bringing people who are different together in in a common cause. It's the thing that separates Utah, I think, from so many states, and certainly from Washington D.C. right now. And and Governor Herbert is is tremendous at this. Um, we've seen it on on several issues, and just a couple. Uh, the LGBTQ issue mm-hmm. is one where you know the governor. You know he's 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 old school for yeah. sure. He's a very conservative Republican, and yet uh, fr- from the the from the minute I came in, he said, this is a big issue. I want to talk to people who see the world differently than me. He would invite them in. He would have Equality Utah come up and meet with him and bring their people to come and talk to him. And, yeah. and most people have no idea that's even going on and, and being able to reach through that. Um, we've certainly seen that type of leadership on the refugee issue. At a time when Republican uh, governors across the country were saying no more refugees in our state, our governor stood up and said, you know what? We still believe in the First Amendment, which which is also includes uh, the freedom of religion. We are are a, we are a state filled with religious refugees. My my great 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 <laughs> grandparents had their home burned down by an angry mob uh, mm-hmm. outside of uh, out in Illinois in Yelrom, uh, that area at the time, and uh, and and we believe in that. And so, doing kind of the unexpected uh, yeah. by reaching across the aisle, listening and learning and loving one another. That's that's the best lesson I've learned, and it's it's something I hope we can continue for for years to come. 
Fantastic. Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox, thanks so much for joining us Thank today. you, Void. Therefore, what? A great conversation with the Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox. Uh, so many takeaways, so many things that we could focus on in this therefore what section. Uh, but I think one of the, the first things that stood out to me as I listened to the Lieutenant Governor today and his unique experiences around the state and across the nation was this idea that humility and empathy really are leadership traits. So often we think of humility as a sign of weakness or empathy as a, a sign that you're going to be a, a weak need uh, kind of leader. Uh, but they're really uh, strengths that they put you in a position of strength, the position put you in a position to actually help other people in a more significant way. And it also helps you actually lead people somewhere. Because they'll want to follow, they'll want to engage, they'll want to have the conversation that will ultimately lead to the best solutions. Uh, I also love the fact that the lieutenant governor focused on uh, everyone matters, regardless of even if you don't think you have a big title or a big position or a big job or a big role, everyone matters. And and we've seen that this week. We, we've seen in the uh, Kavanaugh confirmation here that, that one voice of one person outside an elevator can literally change the direction of an entire debate and conversation. And so there's there's no just an anybody anywhere. There's no, I'm just a teacher, I'm just a worker, I'm just a manager, I'm just a neighbor. Uh, there's no just an anybody. Every voice matters uh, and can really be the ultimate deciding voice that can really change the direction and being willing to raise your voice uh, even when it's uncomfortable. We I loved how we were able to discuss with the Lieutenant Governor his challenges growing up, uh, some of the things that he struggled with in terms of depression and thoughts of suicide and, and anxiety. Uh, and telling that story makes a difference for other individuals. Uh, and we see that play out over and over and over again. So never underestimate the power of one person uh, and what one idea, what one comment, one compliment, one conversation can do in terms of the direction of the country or the community. Uh, I also loved uh, just that he he has not lost his way from the farm. Uh, he is still very connected there. I love the lessons uh, from his dad uh, that you still have to be responsible regardless of what happens. Uh, repentance is real. We're all on some sort of road to redemption of one form or another. Uh, but there are consequences, and you have to be responsible for those things. Uh, I love that Lieutenant Governor really challenged us to expect more of ourselves and expect more of others. And too often we just settle. We need to expect more, not less of each other, especially our conversations in the public square. And whether that's on social media, whether that's in public debates or conversations or disagreements, uh, we have to learn to expect more of each other to elevate the dialogue and the conversation. Uh, and then the, the last lesson he shared from his father, which is awesome, work works. <laughs> you always feel better about yourself when you're doing something. Uh, I believe it was Neil Maxwell that said that work would always be a spiritual necessity for human beings, even when physical work was no longer required. Uh, and I think that's a great takeaway, a great therefore what uh, work works and you always feel better. And then finally, the power of collaboration. Uh, oneness is not sameness in America nor in our communities. But when we set aside our egos, we're willing to listen and have conversations uh, to get beyond that contempt that's so prevalent uh, around the country and in our politics today. But then we can really collaborate. 
we can really get to not just what we think is the best solution, but what is the best solution. Uh, and being able to do that together is really what gives us hope that the country can transcend the, the negativity, the angry rhetoric, the rage, the weaponization of words. All of those things can be done when we collaborate, when we come together in our families and neighborhoods and community. Ultimately, that will drive the country. Remember, after the story is told, after the principles are shared, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening today, and be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com forward slash podcast and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us as we answer the question, therefore what?